I wonder if you ever find yourself wondering what Christianity has to do with you. Like, what, what practical difference does it, does it make to your life? It's a question I always, I often like asking people, if they are Christians, is to just ask them the, the question of what difference does it actually make to your life? Like, what, what actually tangible change has come about because you're a Christian? It, it might be that today... You're, you're not a Christian, you, you haven't yet decided what you think about Jesus, you haven't yet committed your life to following him, you haven't gone to him for repentance. And, and you, if you're honest, for most of your life, Christianity seems a little bit irrelevant. Like you get up on a Monday morning, you go out to work, you do your job, you go home to your family, you do whatever hobbies or whatever other things you do, you sleep, you eat, and you can't really see what practical difference Christianity would make. It's just irrelevant, isn't it? Like, it's irrelevant to your life and to what you're doing. It's just an old book with some random stories which has very little to do with the actual life you're living. Uh, You might look at it and say, I get that some people like it. Some people like the tradition of it. They like the history of it. It makes them feel good. But for me, it it just seems like an irrelevance. In the same way as I don't read other 2,000-year-old books, why would I have any interest in this one? Uh, maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe today you are a Christian, so you're somebody who would say, yeah, I, I do follow Jesus. But you, you sometimes find yourself feeling the same way. Maybe on a, on a Sunday you sit around at a gathering, you come somewhere like this, and you sing the songs, and you desperately try to listen to what I'm saying. But if you're honest, it doesn't really connect. It seems to have nothing to do with the life that you're living. it's just words that someone's saying, but it's not going to make the blind bit of difference when you wake up the next morning to whatever your life has in store for you. It has nothing to say which you haven't already heard, haven't already thought about, which will make any difference by tomorrow morning. Now, now at Grace Church, we, we believe that Christianity is relevant. We believe it does make a difference to our lives. We believe it has stuff to say about your life, whatever it is you're going through. And because of that, we unapologetically want to be about sharing the good news of Jesus. We believe that it is good news of great joy for all people. Uh, And assuming that you are someone included in those all people, then we want to share it with you. We want to be able to talk to you about it. And so the question that we have as a church is how do we bridge this gap? This gap between this whole host of people who think that Christianity has nothing really to say to them and what we believe that it is good news that can absolutely transform a person's life. How do we bridge the gap between our belief that this is the best news you could hear and the general perception that Christianity is irrelevant, old-fashioned, even ridiculous. Like, like, what do we do about that? Well, well, the good news is that that's not a new problem. Because if you think about it, when Christianity started, then you've got to ask yourself the question, how did it ever get any traction? Like, why did anybody ever listen to these people who were coming around talking about Christianity? Why would anyone pay any attention to it? We're currently at this series in Acts. And if you think about what's going on in Acts, what's going on in Acts is, is Paul, 
uh, at the moment. He's turning up in these cities and he's trying to tell people about this good news of Jesus to a whole host of people who are asking the question, what on earth has this got to do with me? Why would I listen to this person who's just wandered into our city and is telling us all this stuff about this person, Jesus? And what we see again and again is that people who Paul's talking to about Christianity, they think exactly the same as so many people think today. They, they think that it's ridiculous. They think that it's irrelevant. They think it's got nothing to say to them. And so being an Acts, I think, will help us to do, think, to do two things. One, it'll help us wrestle with what was it about Christianity which made it take root in so many people's lives so quickly? What was it which made people believe that it was not only relevant to their lives, but worth living for, and for many uh, of them, dying for? What was it about Christianity that had this impact on people's lives, that was sufficiently relevant for it to completely turn the world around in those first centuries? And so it will help us think about what, what does Christianity have to say about real people's real lives? And the second thing it will help us do it will, is it will help us as a church think about how do we go about doing that? How do we go about sharing the good news of Jesus? Because the problems in Acts are the same problems as we face, aren't they? We think it's good news. Loads of other people don't. How do you bridge that gap? How do we go about sharing the good news of Jesus with people who see it as irrelevant, ridiculous, even dangerous? And in some ways, the story we're reading today is the perfect place for us to explore these ideas. Because today we're going to be in Athens. And, and Athens is actually quite like Hartlepool. N- n- not, a, not a comparison that's often been made, I- I'll grant you. One of them is the cultural city, capital of Europe, and the other one is Athens. Um, but but you, you know, you, you, there are actually some remarkable similarities. Uh, And actually, it's really helpful for us when we're thinking about attitudes towards Christianity because what we're going to see is how Christianity connects in in a context that's not dissimilar to ours. So so for a start, Athens was primarily primarily a a city of non-Jews. So there is a synagogue there. Paul's going to visit it. We're going to read it in a minute. He does go to the synagogue. But most of the action doesn't happen in the synagogue this time. Most of the action happens in the marketplace. And then at this place called the Areopagus. Most of the action is among Paul and people who are not Jews. And that is the first similarity between Athens and Hartlepool. Because when we were planting Hartlepool we, uh, at Grace Church, we, we had a look uh, uh, the census data for Hartlepool, just to see what the ethnic makeup of Hartlepool was, there were nine Jews in Hartlepool. So, um, so I think we can safely say we are a non-Jewish uh, like context. That's where we are, and that's what we see in Athens. How does Paul go about communicating the gospel to people who are not Jewish? More than that, not only are they not Jewish, but they actually don't have, because they're not Jewish, they don't have a background in Scripture in the Bible. So it's not like they know when Paul talks, starts talking about God, who God is or which God he's talking about. He could be talking about Zeus or Hades or some other Greek gods that I'm not familiar with. Um, you know, he could be talking about, about other gods. So they're, they're not instantly thinking when Paul starts talking about God, oh, he means the God of the Old Testament. 
Because they don't know the Old Testament. They've never read it. They don't, they don't know anything about it. So how does Paul go about communicating the gospel to people who don't, don't know the Bible, who haven't grown up reading it and looking at it? And I think that's the culture we're in today. People do not grow up kind of steeped in Bible stories, knowing that what's in the Bible. So how do we share good news with people who don't know who God is and how he's revealed himself already? More than that, Athens is a place with lots and lots of different beliefs. People believe different things. So you could walk through this, uh, the, the kind of city center and you'd see all these different people worshipping different gods, believing different things. I think the same is true for Harlequin. If you were to walk through the town center, you would find any number of people who believe a whole range of different things, different religions, different philosophies of life. And linked to that, probably in Athens, there was a general view that most views were equally valid. You worship your god, I worship my gods. Let's not fall out about it. We'll just do our thing. Again, similar to the culture we live in. So, so this, is, this is what we're going to be looking at. How does the good news of Jesus take root in a city like that? And I hope it'll help us think, what does the good news of, about Jesus have to say about my life? And what does it have to say about people in Hartlepool? So let, let's, let's read this story. So let's, um, maybe we'll just read... 16 to 21 first, just to get the kind of um, the bulk of the, the kind of narrative out of the way. So, 16 to 21, let me read it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So what's happened is Paul has gone to Athens by himself. Um, Timothy and Silas, his companions, have, have been left behind in Berea. They're going to join him later. So Paul has found himself unexpectedly in Athens for a period of time by himself. So, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And I'm not sure that would be a statement you could say about Hartlepool, but it's, it's an interesting one non, nonetheless. So, so this, is the, this is the story. This is what happens. So Paul finds himself in Athens. And like he normally does, he goes to the synagogue first. He goes to meet the Jews there uh, and to tell them about Jesus. But then he goes into the marketplace. And in the marketplace, what he finds is this group of people who love talking about ideas. Primarily, he finds two groups of, uh, sort of non-Jewish people described as the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, and they, they had slightly different philosophies on life. So Stoics famously believed in restraint uh, and in virtue, Epicureans in sort of the avoidance of pain, uh, pursuit of pleasure. So they had different approaches to life, but, but he found himself discussing with these, uh, with these Stoics and these Epicureans a bit about Jesus. And what they, did, what they thought was, when they heard him talk about this, they thought, I don't, we don't really understand what he's on about. We, we don't know what this is. And he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So they take him to the Areopagus, which begs the question, what on earth is the Areopagus and why are they taking him there? Um, uh, and the, the answer, I think, is the Areopagus was this big sort of assembly. Uh, and Paul gets taken there, and it was the place, it, it acted like the gatekeeper of ideas in Athens. So you'd have all the kind of great and the good of Athens would sit there, and you would be kind of 
sat before them or stood before them and you would explain your ideas and they would decide whether or not you were allowed to keep telling people about that or not. So they were the gatekeepers of ideas in Athens. If you wanted to, to kind of preach a new idea, present some new ideas in, in Athens, you had to get the Areopagus' approval. So Paul gets taken before them. And actually, he's probably being charged with something. He's, what he's being charged with is advocating foreign gods. So they're sort of accusing him and saying, he's come, he's advocating foreign gods. We don't think he should be doing that. Great Areopagus, can you stop him from doing this, please? And it's important to understand that because what we then have in verses 22 down to the end of the chapter, well, 31, um, is we have Paul's, what Paul says to the Areopagus. And what Paul says is actually two things. So the first thing is, it's a defense against that charge that he's advocating foreign gods to convince them to let him carry on telling people about the gospel in, in um, Athens. So he's defending himself against the charge that they've made to him. That's the first thing he's doing. And then the second thing he's doing, which is what he always does, is he's trying to tell people about Jesus. So he's simultaneously trying to defend himself against this charge that he's advocating foreign gods and also presenting with the good news of Jesus. So, let's see what he says. Verse 22. Let's, let's read from there on. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I wonder what you'd do if, like Paul, you found yourself in Athens unexpectedly for a couple of days by yourself. Uh, my guess is you'd probably do something not that dissimilar to what Paul does, which is he wanders around. Uh, he wanders around and he, he looks at uh, and observes the place that he is. What I think is interesting is, as Paul's looking at it, he isn't simply looking at it and going, oh, well, that's an interesting building. Oh, well, look at the architecture and that. He's not simply doing that. He's thinking about what does this place tell me about what the people who live here value? You know, as, as he walks around Athens, he's thinking... I see all these altars to different gods. And he's saddened by the way they worship all these different gods. Uh, and he, says, he, he can't make certain conclusions on the basis of that. He concludes that they are very religious people. He concludes that they 
accept that there's some stuff they don't know about the divine. And so he's kind of walking around, observing the place, work, trying to get a feel for what the place is. It made me think, about what would I do if I, if I walked around Hartlepool in the same way? If I walked around Hartlepool, what conclusions would I make about what people in Hartlepool value? I think uh, people other than me have observed that if you walk around Hartlepool, what you, what you see is a lot of tanning shops, a lot of nail salons, and a lot of bookies. Um, and so what does, what does that tell you about what we value? probably tells us something about the fact that we value our appearance incredibly highly, which is certainly true of uh, Western culture generally. probably tells us something about how we value money uh, and potentially sport as well. But it's just an interesting question, isn't it? What do, you, what do you actually notice as you look around? And what does it tell you about the things that people value in the place that you are? So as he was walking around Athens, he noticed all these idols, all these objects of worship. And so he starts thinking, there's one thing that I could conclude that people in Athens care about. They care about some idea of God. They care about who God is. Can they know him? What's he about? Uh, And so he starts with this big question of, let me tell you about who God is. I can see that you're interested in who God is because I've walked around your city and I've seen all your altars, all your places of worship. I've seen all the idols you have. I can see that you're people who care about who God is, so let me tell you about him. Uh, And he starts with this altar to an unknown God that he saw. So he's walking around, he, he comes across an altar, a place of worship, and it's, it's labelled to an unknown god. It's kind of, I guess, the Athenian way of saying, there's all these gods, but we might have missed one. There might be one that we don't know about. So just to cover all bases, we'll make this altar to the unknown god so we don't upset a god that we might not know about. But Paul jumps on this. He says, if you're willing to acknowledge that there could be a god that you don't know about, then surely you have to be willing to hear about the God that I want to tell you about because maybe he's that God. Maybe the God that you don't know about is the God that I'm going to tell you about. Now, this is a great start for his speech for two reasons. The first is it's a very good defense. So if the charge is that he's advocating foreign gods, he can legitimately hear say, no, I'm telling you about an unknown God and you've already accepted that there are gods you don't know about. So you can't censor me, you can't shut me down for talking about a God you don't know because you've acknowledged that there's gods you don't know. If I'm telling you about a God you don't know, what's the problem? Why shouldn't I be allowed to talk about this? So it's a good defense, but it also is a great start to the speech because it starts with an issue that they care about. Who is God? People care about who God is. More people in the world believe in God than don't. In fact, globally, it's not even close. If you, according to the census in Hartlepool, more people believe in God than don't, according to the latest census. Globally, the vast, vast majority of people in the world believe in God. Even those who don't believe in God are often interested in whether there could be one or not. And we see it all around us, don't we? We see people who are interested in spiritualism or other religions, people who pray, even when they're not sure who they pray to people who believe they go somewhere when they die. The question of whether or not there is a God interests people. And clearly, it should have practical implications for our life. So if there is a God, then what is he like? What kind of God is he? 
How does he view me? What does he think about me? What does he do in the world? These are all questions that would have an impact, crucially, on that question of how should I live tomorrow? If there isn't a God, then I can live a certain way. And if there is, then surely I have to live a different way. One of the things that strikes me uh, in the world is that it's very easy for people to believe that they can act with impunity, that they can do whatever they want, and no one will ever hold them to account for it. And if you believe that, then life is about, I do whatever I can get away with. If there is a God, you can't live like that anymore. You can't live like, well, I can do what I can get away with, because you know at some point you will be held to account. It has a huge practical implications on what you do and don't do with your life. It also has, has a huge difference on how you approach your life. So if there is a God, that will have an impact on how secure you feel, on how loved you feel, on the decisions you make, on the things that you value and the things that you pursue. It's not just an internal thing, well, do I happen to believe in a God or not? It has huge implications on the decisions we make. It's hard, I think, to argue that whether there is a God or not is a meaningless irrelevance that has nothing to do with my life. You see, I want to I start by suggesting that Christianity has relevance to you because it deals with one of the key questions of life. Is there a God? And if there is, what is he like? One of the key questions that people have asked, human beings have asked throughout their history. There's never been a time in history where people haven't been asking that question, exploring that question. And Christianity has an answer to it. Paul has an answer to it. He says certain things about God. He says there is a God. He says this God made everything. That's where he starts. He made all of the universe. He's not a small parochial God who made a little bit of it. He's a God who made everything. More than that, he's a God who sustains everything. So he's not the giant, whatever they're called, watchmaker who kind of creates it and leaves it to tick along. He sustains it. He remains actively involved in his world. He's not distant from it. He, every day he upholds it. Uh, and crucially, this God who made everything, who sustains everything, he wants us to know him. This is all information about who God is. And this is where Paul starts. He starts by spelling out, there is a God, this is who he is. The God who made everything, the God who sustains everything, the God who wants people to know him. So that's the first big question he starts with, as he tries to gain some traction for Christianity here. But then he moves on to the second big question. And the second big question is perhaps even more uh, relevant in our society. It's a question of who are we? Because whether we're interested in who God is or not, it's pretty clear that our society is obsessed with the question of who we are. What is our identity? What makes me, me? What does it mean to be authentically the person that you're supposed to be? How do I have a positive view of self? These are questions that our society is obsessed with. And what's really interesting is that when Paul is trying to show these people in Athens who God says that they are, he actually quotes not the Old Testament, not anything from the Bible, he quotes two of their own poets, two Greek poets. It's clear that Paul thinks that these people who don't know or believe in God could still have some insight into who people are. In the synagogues, he points to the scripture to defend what he was teaching. Here, he points to pagan poets. And the point is this, that some of what God says is stuff which people already think. So Paul says our primary identity is to be found in knowing that we were created by God and made in his image. 
And then he says, and you already believe this because your poets tell us this. They say that we are his offspring, created by God, bearing his image, bearing something of his likeness. You see, he starts by saying, what God says about who you are agrees with what you already think about who you are. We can do the same thing. Whether you are a Christian or not here today, you probably believe that people have dignity and worth. Like, you probably believe that, because most people do. And I, as a Christian, I can affirm that and say, yes, you're right. I can go further than that, and I can ask, why do you think people have dignity and worth? And I can then say, well, this is why I think people have dignity and worth. I believe people have dignity and worth, because I believe that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore equal before him. Whether you're a Christian or not, you probably believe that authenticity is important. You probably think that it's, it's important to be authentic about who you are, to be true to yourself. Well, again, I can affirm that and say that God encourages us to view ourselves accurately and to avoid all hypocrisy and pretense. You see, there's lots of things that people believe that they believe because they know something of who God is, even if they're denying him. You see, Christianity is relevant because it deals with the question of who are you? What does it mean to be you? A question that each of us is battling with. And it actually does more than that. It gives us a reason to believe so many of the things that we naturally believe, like that all people are equal, like that human beings have intrinsic dignity and worth, like that it's important for people to be authentic. Fundamentally, the Bible says what Paul says here. All of us are God's offspring, created by him and having something of his image in us. It teaches that we're all loved by God and sustained by him. That is the foundation of who you are. And in the society where people are desperate to know who they are, that should be super relevant. Like it should be something that actually connects with people because people are obsessed with that question. likely to have a huge impact on how we live. It'll impact what we expect from ourselves, how we view and treat other people, how secure we are as we attempt to navigate the complexities of life. And so Paul, as he's trying to talk about this new idea that no people have heard about, that people in a, in a sea of other ideas could easily ignore, starts by saying, well, let me tell you about who God is, and then let me tell you about who you are. And I suppose you could legitimately say, well, so what? So that's who God is, that's who I am. What, what does that mean? What am I meant to do? Why did he make us? How am I supposed to respond to that information? And the good news is, Paul goes on to talk about that. He says that God created us to know him. That's the good news which, God, which Paul goes on to communicate to them. So Paul goes on to tell them what God wants, but he starts by telling them what he doesn't want. If you look at verse 25, if you still have this open, I think this is an important starting point. Paul, what's Paul's point? Paul here, he says in verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So Paul starts by just ruling out that God needs something from them. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need anything from us. If God is the one who made us, he doesn't need anything from us. And you've got to start there because that's so radically different to how most of us think about God. Just, just hugely different to how we think about God. If you are 
if you are not a Christian, then you probably are tempted to buy into this idea that God wants something from you. That in order to know the God who made us, we need to do some good work. We need to be a good person or go to church or give money away or whatever it is. But Paul's clear. God doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't want your money or your service or anything from you. If you are sat here thinking that is how you will come to know God, then Paul is saying you need to readjust your view of God. Because that's not who God is. God's the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything. He doesn't need anything from you. But if that's not something that just non-Christians believe. That's something that so many of us as Christians fall into the trap of believing. We, we believe that we need to earn something from God. The, the most common way I think I see this in my life, and I see it in other people's lives, is in when we pray for things. Bef- we, we fall into this trap of thinking, before I pray to God and ask him for something... I need to get things sorted out. So I haven't really been reading my Bible for the last week, so I can't really pray to him now because like, it feels a bit like grabby. Uh, and so what I need to do is have a few days of good, quiet times, good Bible reading, get, my, get, get God back on side, and then I can ask him for those things. Oh, well, I haven't really been going to church the last few weeks, so I probably shouldn't ask God for that stuff because then it seems like I just want stuff from God. So I should probably start going to church, start doing all those good things, and then I can ask God for that thing. I need to sort my life out first. I, need to, I know there's these areas that aren't great in my life, but before I talk to God and ask him for those other things, I better get those things sorted out because otherwise he won't listen to me. We have this idea that God wants something from us. Paul is clear. God doesn't need anything from you. And so what is it that God does want? Well, we're told in verse 27. Why did God create you? Why does God sustain you every single day of your life? Why does he give you another day of breath? Verse 27, so that we will seek him. God created us to know him. We said, I don't want to know you. And the whole of our life is God calling us back. Every single day is God calling us back, saying, come seek me, know the God you were created to make. And the good news that Paul says in verse 27 is he says, though he's not actually far from any of us, He's not actually that hard to find. You were created by God to know him. And the good news is he's actually easy to know. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to do something to get into his good books. You just need to seek him. We're told that again and again. If you seek God, you will find him. If you're somebody who's, who's not a Christian today, let me encourage you, God's not, God's not hard to find. Now you need to turn to him, talk to him, seek him. God has promised that he will show himself to you. If you are a Christian here today and you feel distant from God, maybe you're living with some sin in your life, maybe you're just ignoring him and taking him for granted, this is the good news for you. God's still near to you. He's still looking for you to seek him, calling you back. God doesn't stuff from us he just wants us to seek him and so the question is how do you do that what does seeking God look like it's all well and good for me to say all you need to do is seek God but maybe you're sat there thinking yeah but I've kind of I've tried that and it hasn't really worked maybe you're a Christian he says well I've been doing that all my life but I still feel such a mess 
What does it look like to come to know the God who we've rejected? What does it look like to seek him? Well, Paul tells them at the end of the speech, wherever it is, verse, 20, verse 30. What does seeking God look like? God commands all people to repent. Seeking God looks like repentance. We come to know God by repenting, by saying we're sorry for the ways we've rejected him, for the ways we've failed to love him, for the way we've hurt the planet he made, the people he loved, even ourselves, and then turning away from those things. The message of Christianity, the message Paul was proclaiming here in Athens was the good news of a restored relationship with the God who made us through the forgiveness of sins, which can be received by anyone who repents because of what Jesus has done for them at the cross. At the cross, Jesus died to suffer the consequences of our sin. He was judged for our sin so that we can be forgiven. So now we can come to know God by simply repenting. I sometimes wonder if we overcomplicate Christianity. Like if, if, we, if we have so much stuff around it that we just lose the heart of it. At its most basic level, Christianity is about admitting that we've sinned, rejected God and his ways, and then repenting of that. that w- that's the message of Christianity that was preached by Jesus. So we're told Jesus came preaching a message of the forgiveness of sins, calling on people to repent and be baptized. It was the message that Jesus gave. It was the message of the apostles. So again and again, when you see Acts, the message that they give is forgiveness of sins through repentance. It's the message by all of Jesus' followers for the last 2,000 years. It's that message which has been believed by millions and millions of people over those years. The message hasn't changed. God's command remains the same. Repent, come back to the God who made you. So Paul's kind of, he's he's got these people, and he's got this new idea, and they're not sure what it is. So what's he going to say? He's going to say, look, this is who God is. He's the one who created everything. This is who you are. Somebody who's loved by God, made in his image, sustained by him. And this is what God's calling you to do. Calling you back to him, to know him through repentance. And of course, the only last thing you need to do at that point is you need to give some reason why anyone should believe you. Like, I could have made up any old rubbish. I could have said anything. I could have said, there's a God like this, and you're like this, and this is what you need to do. But why should I believe you? Why should anyone believe Paul? When he stood up in this, in this ocean of a million different gods and a million different ideas, why should anyone believe God, Paul? Why should this idea have caught, have kind of captured people's imagination so much? Well, partly it's because he's talking about ideas that they're interested in, ideas like whether there's a God and what God's like, ideas about what does it mean to be human and who we are, ideas like what does God want from us and how do we get to know him, ideas about sin and death and guilt and forgiveness. These are ideas that human beings have been interesting for a long time. But of course, Paul concludes by telling them why they should believe him. And his, his reason is perhaps one that we don't use enough. Paul concludes and says, you should believe this because God has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. That, that's, that's why Paul says you should believe it. You should believe this message, not because I'm telling you it, not because I'm so convincing. You should believe it because God has given you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This, that is what makes Christianity more than a nice idea or wishful thinking. 
that Jesus died for our sins and then he came back to life. That resurrection proves he was no ordinary man. It was the, the, that resurrection which convinced Paul and all the apostles to spend their lives telling people about him. If Jesus really came back from the dead, then why would we not believe him when he says that he can offer us forgiveness from our sins and bring us back into the relationship with God we were created to enjoy? You see, that's where, why Paul says they should believe it. And it's interesting because how do they, they respond? Well, you see it in verse 32. Some of them respond sneer when he starts talking about resurrection. Isn't that what we're worried about? Isn't that why we so often don't point to that as the proof of Christianity? Because we're worried people go, you can't believe that. Someone coming back to the dead. People don't come back to life from the dead. As if you believe that. No one could believe that. We're worried about people sneering. And people do sneer. But some people believe. Uh, let, me, let me try and wrap this up. I have, uh, you'll, you'll often hear when you're talking to people, people say, um, that they're not interested in politics. So I, I've, I've had this conversation with people, I'm like, oh, just not interested in politics, I just, I just can't be bothered with it. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in it. But I always think that's an interesting statement because everybody cares about, I don't know, what the state of their roads are like, or about what schools are like, or about whether they can get a doctor's appointment, or about what the hospitals are like, or about how much tax they, get pe- they have to pay, or about how many benefits they receive. These are all political questions. So what do people mean when they say, I'm not interested in politics? I think often what they mean is, I'm not interested in the sort of political infrastructure. I'm not interested in the establishment. They've lost confidence or interest in the political institutions. It's not that they don't care about those issues. Is that they don't think that the, the establishments, that all those things that, call under that come under the bracket of politics, actually are going to do anything about it. I wonder if the same is true of Christianity. People will, will say, oh, I'm just not really interested in Christianity. I'm not really interested in religion. I'm not really interested in those kind of ideas. But really, who's not interested in the question of whether there is a God or not? Who's not interested in, if there is a God, what's he like? Who's not interested in the question of who am I and why do I exist? Who's not interested in the question of what is the purpose of life? What happens when you die? I I wonder if lots of times when people say I'm not interested in Christianity, what they actually mean is I've lost confidence or interest in religious institutions. I'm not interested in the church is what they mean. Because people are interested in those questions, aren't they? Who is God? Who am I? What happens when I die? What's the point of life? These are kind of universal questions that all of us have to, at some level, wrestle with. Here's here's what I want to suggest. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to try and cut through all those things that you say you're not interested in. You know, your preconceptions of Christianity. Maybe your past bad experiences of the church. Maybe kind of what you see when you look out at religious institutions or religious people. I want you to cut through all that and I want to invite you to come and know the person of Jesus and the God that he calls you to know. Don't let all that stuff get in the way because Christianity is actually super relevant to your life. It's about, is there a God? Who is he? Who are you? What does it mean to know him? And because of that, how should you live? What happens when you die? If you are a Christian today, I want these truths about God, that he is the one who made you, who loves you, who sustains you, 
these truths about ourselves, that we're made in his image, these truths about life and forgiveness and the centrality of repentance, I want those things to actually shape your life. These are not random beliefs, but they're things that should actually change what we pursue on a Monday morning, what we live for, what we care about, what we do. These should not simply be, oh, well, I happen to believe these things. These should be the things that drive our lives. And then the final thing I want us to think about as a church is just, I want us to have confidence that this message that Paul told the Athenians remains relevant, it remains good news, and that we, like Paul, should seek to find every opportunity to show people that it is. That Christianity actually has something to say into their lives about who they are, about who God is, and about who he created us to be. Let me pray, and then Amy will come wrap up for us.